What a great song to go right into what I'm going to be talking about this morning. How many of you went out Black Friday? <laughs> you smart. You are smart. I think my wife posted on her Facebook post uh, something about like, this is me on Black Friday and it's got her sitting in front of a couch and a TV with a remote. We did go out, but not to shop. We actually went to see uh, Santa Claus because evidently nobody goes to see Santa Claus during the Black Friday except for us. And so we don't have, we have skipped all the lines and we got that done. And uh, then we went home, and today we actually are going to decorate. We haven't decorated yet, uh, but uh, we're looking forward to it. Many of you probably already have. Your house is already, you're like uh, Disney. You go from Halloween to Christmas. You know, I, I don't know. It just seemed like more and more people were putting Christmas decorations up in their homes earlier than uh, normal. Uh, maybe it was because there was something on the news this week that said when putting up Christmas decorations makes you happy. So maybe more people are sad and they wanted to be happy and they put them up. But maybe that's one of you. I hope not. But uh, I'm looking forward to this season and as we enter this Advent season. Uh, I want to pose to you this morning one question. Why did Jesus have to come to earth? Why did Jesus have to come to earth? Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you will give me the attention of these people for the next few minutes, may your word go forth and accomplish that which pleases you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19 and just put them back in your lap. Just hold on to them. Uh, if you're using your phone, just keep it off for a little bit and I'll tell you when to open them up and turn them on or whatever else that you're going to do with them. But it'll be Luke chapter 19 and I will eventually get there. So why did Jesus have to come? And in order to answer this question, I want to look at three specific purposes that God had in mind why Jesus had to come. The first one is this. It was foreordained in eternity past. What actually happened before time began? What actually happened before the world was ever created? Well, the Bible gives us some insight about that. It says in John chapter 17, verse 24, that God loved the Son. He says, for you, talking about God the Father, loved me. This was in the great prayer of Jesus, the actual Lord's prayer. For you, God the Father, loved me, God the Son, before the foundation of the world. Christ was then chosen to be our sacrifice. We see in 1 Peter chapter 1, you were rescued by the precious blood of Christ, that spotless and innocent lamb. Christ was chosen even before the world was created. Think about that for a minute. Before anything happened, Christ was chosen to do what he was going to do for you and I. But we, you know what is even more spectacular than that? Is found in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 4 where we see that we were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. It says in that verse, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then what's even more remarkable, as you even think about it, is that all of the names of those who are chosen, 
are already and have already been written in the Lamb's book of life. We see in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has been not been written in the excuse me, whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who had been slain. We don't know who is written in that book, but God does. My name was written down in October 24th, 1965, when I accepted Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. I don't know what day it is for you, but I hope that your name is written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. But why did Jesus have to come? If God knew everything that was going to happen and needed to happen to Jesus Christ before everything or anything was ever created, that why would he have to send his son to die on an old rugged cross for the sins of mankind? Since I don't have the mind of God, I'm not going to try to figure it out. Because if I were God, I know that I would have done it differently. I would have not looked at these people and I would have looked at these people and said, they're never going to trust in me. They're, they're going to always turn their back on me. They're always going to constantly sin. So why send my only son to go through what he had to go through? I don't know. I'm not God and I don't have the mind of God. But he knew all of this before the earth was even created. He knew that he knew that by creating man, that man would turn their backs on him, the creator. He knew that he would have to send his son to suffer for our sins and to die for our sins. He knew that he would have to send his son and be a part of his son and let his son leave the splendor and glory of heaven to come down to this earth for you and I. He knew that even all, through all of this, that man would still turn their backs on God. I don't know about you, I just would not have done it this way. But despite all of that, knowing what God knew before the foundation of the earth, why did Jesus still have to come, very simply, to fulfill God's plan for us. God gave only one law when man was created. Do you know what that one law was? Adam could eat of anything that he wanted to, except he could not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One law. Can you imagine being in that world in the Garden of Eden? All the things were at your fingertips to have and enjoy. And it's human nature, isn't it, that we want what we can't have. And Satan somehow you know, honed in on that and said, Jerry, you can have everything, but you just can't have this. You know why you can't have this? Because God doesn't want you to be thinking like him. Because if you were to eat of that tree, you would have all the knowledge of good and evil that God had. Well, of course, Eve took it one step farther. He said to the, she said to the serpent, not only can we not eat of it, but we can't even touch it. She added to God's word, and that was a lie. And so you know what happened. You know that Adam broke the law. 
and you and we and I, you and I, I should say, break the law, we, there are consequences for our actions. And there were consequences for Adam. First of all, he was cursed in Genesis chapter 3 and 14. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden in verses 23 and 24. Adam had to work hard after that for, the, for his fruit, food. God said, by, the, fruit, by the, the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to work and eat. Women were going to give pain during childbirth. And then women lost their position of being equal with man to being one of submissiveness and the weaker vessel. Genesis 3.16 and 1 Peter 3.7. The scripture tells us that because of Adam's sin, that all of us have now sinned. It's passed on because of what Adam did. Romans 5.12 tells us that wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. If you think you have not sinned, you're lying. You've all sinned. We've all done wrong. We all are guilty of doing wrong. And guess what? It's on a regular basis. We have to constantly have a short account with God because it seems like we turn around and there's a bad thought going in our head. There's something else going on. We sin on a constant basis. Again, why would God put his son through all of that knowing what we would be doing on a regular basis? But our sins against a holy God demand the ultimate payment. And the ultimate payment is death. Romans 3.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. God put a price tag on sin. He said, you're going to have to pay this price tag, and that price tag is you're going to die. All of us deserve death. We deserve to be tormented. We deserve to be separated from a holy God for all eternity. And when we sin, we literally are shaking our fist to a holy God. So God in the Old Testament said, I'm going to allow you to take a lamb once a year and bring it to the high priest and sacrifice it for your sins. Now, this can't just be any lamb. This has to be your best lamb, the spotless lamb, the pure lamb. This is the lamb that's going to hurt you to give it up for a sacrifice for your sins. It's got to hurt because I don't want to make it easy on you. I want to make it difficult, God said. And even, in our, even for us, our little white lies, you know, we've all told those little white lies, they're too great to, and they make us imperfect in front of a holy God. So we can't give ourselves to be a sacrifice. God is perfect, and he requires a perfect sacrifice. So God himself, out of love for everyone, created and paid our sin debt by taking on human form. We all have heard that story over the years. But I want you to remember our verse just a few moments ago in 1 Peter chapter 1, where it says that Christ was chosen we sang it just a moment ago, the chosen one. He was chosen to be our sacrifice before.
before he even created this earth. Scripture also tells us that Christ was to give his life as a ransom. Matthew 28, 20 and verse 28 says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. What is a ransom? It is the price that you have to pay to purchase a hostage. If somebody is in hostage, they demand a ransom in order to be released. We are hostages to sin. But Jesus Christ purchased our sin debt, sacrificing himself to save others. We see that word save in 1 Peter 1.19 and 1 Corinthians 6.20 and Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. And that word save there in those verses mean to rescue from intimate danger. Jesus Christ came to rescue us because we were in danger of spending eternity apart from him because we were created for his glory. That's why we were created. Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 7 tells us that. Because why would God do it? John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then he goes right into verse 17. And sometimes we forget that verse. Where it says, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. It makes sense that God loved the world because he created it. John chapter 1 and verse 3. And I want you to picture in your mind's eye this morning what Jesus really did for you and I. Jesus gave up all of the splendors of heaven. We read in Revelation how glorious heaven is and how beautiful heaven is. Christ gave all of that up to come to earth. He gave up being with his Father. I don't know about you, but the hardest years of my life were when I lived down here and I was separated from my Father. Yes, I could give him a call anytime I wanted to, but I wasn't there with him on a daily basis to talk to him, to be with him. Because see, I was his shadow growing up. My, before my dad was in the ministry, he worked for the Indiana Gas Company. Uh, that went out when there was a natural gas leak or something like that. He went out and he repaired them all. And I would go with him as often as I could on calls. And I would mimic him and I would do what he did because I wanted to be just like my dad. I loved spending time with my dad. And that fellowship is gone. That separation was gone. Jesus left his father to come to earth. Jesus also gave up the fellowship with the angels. His created beings who praised and worshipped him. He gave up that fellowship. He humbled himself to become a baby who grew into a man and chose to die on the cross to pay the incredible debt for our sins by suffering. 
by being mocked, by being ridiculed, by having a crown of thorns pressed upon his brow, by being beaten with a cat of nine tails till he almost bled out, to being ridiculed and mocked as he was carrying his cross to the place where he was going to die. He did it for you and I. And even on the cross, as badly bruised, beaten, and bloodied that he was, there was a thief on one side and a thief on the other. One of them continued to mock Jesus and didn't believe in him. The other one did. And what did that thief say to Jesus? Remember me when you're in paradise? And Jesus said, you're going to be with me today in paradise. What a remarkable thing. Jesus constantly had other people on his mind, even on the cross. And he did all of that so that we could be his children. So that we could be adopted into his family. So that we could be called his heirs. Think about that. We don't deserve it. We sung about it this morning. And most of you just read the words and didn't have any meaning up there at all. He did all of that for you and I. So that ultimately, we will be able to spend eternity in God's holy, awesome presence and have fellowship with Him and worship Him. Jesus had to live a perfect life. We think that Jesus went from being a baby to becoming a man at 33, or at 30, when he started his ministry. That's how we view it, and with that one little exception when he was 12 years old in the temple. Because the Bible skips all of that stuff. But think about for 33 and a half years that Jesus lived on this earth, he lived a perfect, sinless life. He was faced with all the same temptations that you and I were and are faced with. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter five or 4 and verse 15, where we, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. This means that in his human flesh, Jesus Christ was faced with every single temptation you and I are faced with and have faced. And he did it without sinning. Because he was the perfect, spotless lamb of God. But why did Jesus still have to come to earth? I think it's found ultimately in a story where you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 19. This is such an incredible story. I love this story. It's about the story of Zacchaeus. You know Zacchaeus, that wee little man. That wee little man was he. And he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Now I got you all thinking about that song, don't I? But I want you to look at it carefully. Beginning in verse number 1. He, Jesus entered Jericho, and was passing through. I love that. He was passing through. He was just walking along with his disciples and others. And there was a, a man named Zacchaeus. 
And I love the way Luke, he, he, he's the doctor, and so he has a lot of details in this. And Luke says he was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into, now this is specific here, a sycamore tree. From being, I'm from Indiana. And Indiana has a lot of sycamore trees. And in my younger days, before I had three knee surgeries, I could climb trees. And I love to climb trees. And the sycamore tree was the easiest of all trees to climb. First of all, the branches were low to the ground. So if you were short or if you were a child, you could grab those branches and you could climb up. And then once you got on those lower branches, you were able to climb up as high as you could. And there was one time I actually got a little too high and realized that my weight was a little bit more than that branch could handle. And I stepped out on that branch, and guess what? That branch started to go over this way. And I was up in the air because I love to climb. Fortunately, there was another branch there, and I grabbed it, and I started to <laughs> come make my way down. But it's one of those things. I wanted to see how high I could climb. And I'm sure that, and in the summertime, there, there is so much foliage on the sycamore tree that you could hide yourself in the tree and nobody would find you. It was a great place when we were playing hide-and-go-seek as a child because that was my favorite place to go. We'd be outside and, you know, somebody's counting to uh, 100 or whatever it was. I'd run to the sycamore tree and I would climb up into it and I'd get as high as I could and I'd just sit there until I heard the words, all right, what was it, ollie, ollie, income free, which doesn't make any sense to me, but that's what we would say. And we would come down and then I would make my way down to the, the, the ground. I could only do that a couple of times because then people would know where my hiding spot was. But I was so good at hiding because of the camouflage of the tree that I could actually go up several times and no one would actually see me up there. And I'm sure that maybe Zacchaeus said, well, I want to get up in the tree to see Jesus, but he might have been a little scared. I don't want Jesus to know I'm there. I just want to see Jesus. And so he climbed up into that sycamore tree, and let's continue on, to see him, for, he, for Jesus was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, what did he do? He looked up into the tree, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, now that right there would have scared me to death. Because we don't know if Zacchaeus had ever met Jesus before then. The Bible does not say that he did, or had Zacchaeus ever knew who Jesus was. And all of a sudden, Jesus looks up and goes, uh, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down from there. And Zacchaeus came down because the Lord said, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And verse 7 says, And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone into the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. 
And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he was also the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus was a lying, deceptive, cheating tax collector who was hated by everyone. Why do you think the people grumbled in verse number 8? Zacchaeus, in a moment's time, after meeting Jesus, his entire life was changed. Zacchaeus' life transformed into a new creature. Zacchaeus had been saved. He became a Christian. His life now was full of love, mercy, and kindness. And he proved that by giving away his wealth, that that was, that was what he lived for was to become wealthy. Now he's given it away. Not just one time or two times or three times, but four times. Amazing. When Jesus comes into a, your life, the changes that are going to happen in your life. But Jesus summed up the event this way with these powerful words. He says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is why Jesus came to earth. To seek and to save the lost. The term for lost here means the same thing as sinners. Before we, you and I become a Christian, we are part of the lost. We are sinners. Nothing more uh, that we as sinners are but an enemy of God. And therefore, as enemies of God, we must, first of all, realize that we're an enemy of God, and then secondly, repent of our sins. We must then, after that, believe in what Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary. But this now brings me to the point. We've already looked at what God did because he foreordained this. And we looked at why Christ had to come to seek and to save which was lost. But then it's up to you and I. It's time for us to carry forward his message. Christ is now up in heaven preparing a place for us, according to John 14, verses 1 through 3. He's preparing a place for you and I and everyone whose name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. But he left us with a command. He left us with a command to be his witnesses. Because he knew he was going to have to go back up into heaven. And there had to be some people that carried on this message. Yes, God does know every name who is written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. But guess what, folks? We don't. But here's the problem. We know how to do the easier commands that God left us to do. We know that after you become a Christian... And if you accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that it's easy to follow in believer's baptism. It's easy to follow in joining a church. It's easy to follow in taking of the Lord's Supper. We know how to attend church regularly. We know how to praise and worship. I was, I, you know, up front is a great place to sit because you get to hear everybody behind you. 
and you don't know exactly whose voices are coming from where, it's just a great sound. We know how to praise and worship when we come here on Sunday morning. We know how to read and study our Bibles. We know how to pray for the most part. We actually know how to love and to forgive others. So then why, I ask you this morning, are churches around this nation of ours so empty? I believe it's because we are not doing our job. We're not doing our job, which is the job of witnessing. It seems that we know how to do everything else but that one job that we're actually commanded to do. Let me ask you something. What happens when you go into a store and the employee there isn't doing their job because you see them on their phone just texting and you're sitting in line, standing in line, waiting to check out and they're, they've got more important things to you than to take care of you, right? What do we end up doing? We get upset. And we get mad because they haven't, aren't taking care of us. They don't even know that we're standing in front of them. And then we say, well, all right, well, I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to go find a manager. And so we'll go and find a manager and tell them about that employee that's not doing their job. And we get upset and we get mad. But what do you think Christ is thinking about you and I this morning? Are we making him mad by not doing our job? Because we have a job to do as Christians. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 is for all Christians. Get that this morning. It's not just for the pastors of the church. It's not for the people that are employed at the church. It is for every single Christian today. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want to ask you a few questions this morning, and I want you to search your soul in finding the answer. When was the la Now, listen, I'm, I've preached this to myself all week long, and I am just as guilty as you are, probably even more so. When was the last time that you obeyed God's command to go? Now that word go means as you are going in this world of ours, as you are going, you are to be my witnesses. When was the last time you obeyed that command to go? When was the last time that you witnessed to somebody and led them to Christ? We say, I don't know how to lead a person to Christ. All you have to do is give them your testimony. How did you become a Christian? When was the last time you witnessed and led someone to Christ? When was the last time that you saw that convert baptized? When was the last time that you taught them how to be a vibrant Christian? You notice what I said there? When was the last time you taught them, which means you're going to have to know what you believe and why you believe it. When was the last time you taught them to be a vibrant Christian, ultimately seeing them lead someone else to Christ and starting the process all over again? We seem to leave all of those tasks up to the church, 
So we've quit doing our job as God has commanded us to do. You may be thinking to yourself this morning, well, I'm just too scared. I can't do it. I am such an introvert. So am I. If I were sitting in this church as a regular church member, you know where I'd be sitting with every single Sunday? That row right up in the top, last row, all the way as far as I could so that I didn't have to talk or talk to, you know, see anybody. I'm like my mother-in-law. Hi, Irene. She's holding her face down. Now she's going to walk right out of the church this morning. That's me. I am an introvert, believe it or not. That's where I sat in 1974 at a conference, 5,000-seat auditorium. I sat in the last row, the farthest away from the pulpit that I could get to. And God still called me to go into youth work. So I don't care if you're in the balcony all the way up there, if you're in the front row, God can still get a hold of your life, and I hope that he will. But you might say, I'm too scared. I don't know how to witness or lead a person to Christ. We have had countless opportunities of classes, even here in our own church, to show a person how to win a person to Christ. Maybe you just didn't show up for those sessions. But you know what Acts 1.8 tells us? I love this. It says, you shall receive what? Power. You shall receive power. When you get out and you start talking to people about Jesus Christ, there's something that comes into your life that only, you can, that only can be explained with the power of God because all of us introverts don't want to talk to anybody about Christ. But when we start talking, things change. And Acts 1.8 says, be a witness for Christ where you are. First of all, in Jerusalem, where you are. It says then, be a witness for Christ to the places that you like to go. Judea. You have Jerusalem where you're at. Then you go the places that you like to go, Judea. Then it says something interesting. We've quoted it a thousand times, most of us. And it says, be a witness in Samaria. You ever thought about that? Samaria are the places that you don't want to go to. Remember John chapter 4 and verse 9, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. The Jews did not want to even go to Samaria. And thank God in verse number 4, the Bible says that Jesus had to go to Samaria. The Jews had no dealings with them, but Jesus had to go. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Because there was someone there who needed the living water of Jesus Christ. Sometimes you and I have to go where we don't want to go because there is someone who needs to hear the message of Christ. We need to be a messenger. We are ambassadors, the Bible tells us. And we need to carry this message where, we, where we're at, where we like to go, where we don't want to go, and then ultimately to carry it around the world, no matter where we're at. And there's no better time than to be a witness than during this Christmas season. Because it becomes the easiest time to actually witness for Christ. 
Because God gave the greatest gift that everyone, anyone could ever want to receive. Because during this time of giving, it's the time where you give gifts to people. And if you know there's only two things that you can do with a gift, the first one is what we most of us do. We accept it. And the other one is to reject it. Those are the only two things you can do with a gift. You can either receive it or reject it. And this is the greatest time because we have the greatest gift of all that God gave his only begotten son, the greatest gift, Jesus Christ. It is the greatest gift, which is salvation. And I want to leave you with this this morning. Let's now go out and do our jobs. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, I wanted to get one specific thought today, and that is, especially for me, God, give me the courage, the strength, and the power to be a better witness for you. Help me to see opportunities and not pass them by just because I might be a little introverted. God, give us all the boldness that only you can give. Help us as we leave this place to do a better job in doing our jobs of being a witness for you. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.